Hello, everyone. It's great to see you here at uh, Focus 2018 in the Emotional Health Stream. You're so welcome here. It'd be great if we could try and sit in this central block, which is quite massive. It's just acoustically, it's really helpful because you'll be able to hear really well. And also, hopefully, you'll be able to see us really well, too. So we're going to address you guys here. If you're on the fringes, I just really encourage you to move in. My name is Will Vanderhart. Uh, I'm pastoral chaplain at Holy Trinity Brompton, and I'm also one of the founding directors of the Mind and Soul Foundation, which is a think tank engaging issues of emotional and mental health and Christian spirituality. And this is my dear friend, Pete Hughes. Pete, why don't you introduce yourself, bud? Yeah, so my name's Pete, and I lead a church in central London called KXC, King's Cross Church. I lead it with my wife, B. We got three amazing kids, and um, yeah, I've worked with Will when we were both at St. Mary's many years ago, and we've been very close friends ever since, so it's an absolute joy to be here. Thanks so much for coming down, Pete. Now, um, Pete, we've been doing a little bit of work on the Sermon on the Mount over the last year or so. Just tell us a bit about what's been happening at KXC, because you've just finished this season of emotionally healthy spirituality as a, as a kind of a, a season of teaching in the church. How how's that impacted the church? Yeah, so we, we did this uh, probably earlier in the year, we did the Sermon on the Mount series. And um, people absolutely loved it, and they absolutely hated it. It was unbelievably challenging. It was hugely inspiring. It created a real reaction, which I'm guessing when Jesus taught, um, you know, this sermon series, uh, at first would have had a similar response. And I actually brought Will in for sort of like to deal with some of the trickier parts of the passage. So he came in, and we, we did a session with him. Again, absolutely phenomenal teaching. But it raises all sorts of questions, very practical questions about how to live and how to thrive in life. Um, and then off the back of the Sermon on the Mount series, we've done a teaching series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is really looking at how do we bring every part of who we are, um, every part of our story, the high, the lows, the challenges, um, the moments of celebration, how do we bring that into a conversation and into communion with God? How do we allow him to heal and restore us so that we can be agents of healing and restoration to the culture around us? Um, and I think, again, we're a pretty young church demographically, but people have found it unbelievably helpful because they're aware of this kind of inner world, the chaos, the disorder, um, and yet a lot of the time feel paralysis about what to do. So practical teaching that helps them bring that to Jesus as part of their discipleship um, has been life-giving. And Pete, in terms of like the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, yeah. when we're talking here about, particularly we're looking at Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapters 5 and 6 uh, is our main focus. What, t- tell us a bit about it as a, as a piece of teaching. I mean, obviously for me, it's like the it's like the high place of Jesus' teaching. It's, yeah. all, it's all amazing, but well, I get seriously excited about the Sermon on the Mount as a piece of teaching. But it, it's more than just a piece of teaching. There's a, a theological framework there that it sort of integrates ethics yeah. and uh, signs and wonders. How, how, how does it work out? Introduce the text to us, if you will. Yeah, so when we started this series, you could sense a level of panic in the room of like, oh my goodness, are we going to really go there about Jesus' ethical teaching? Because it's fairly hardcore, and are we going to drown, you know, as, as we immerse ourselves in this teaching? But I, I think there's three foundations worth naming before we get to the practical stuff, and that's where Will is phenomenal, about how, how do we live this stuff out, become emotionally healthy, mentally healthy. Um, but in terms of the theological foundation, there's three things I want to mention. Number one, that the Sermon on the Mount is the pathway to kingdom activity. So if you play 
place this sermon from Jesus within the sort of context of Matthew's Gospels, you'll notice this little um, device that, that Matthew uses. There's a verse just preceding the Sermon on the Mount, and then when, he's finished, when Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew adds another verse in chapter 9. So the verse running into it, hopefully you can see it on the screen, uh, which is chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So that's sort of like the intro into the Sermon on the Mount. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you've got almost word for word exactly the same verse. Um, chapter 9, 35, Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease um, and sickness. So what Matthew's trying to do is basically say, if you long for the signs and wonders of the kingdom of God, the words, the works, and the wonders of the kingdom of God, then, then you need to recognize that the way of the kingdom, this ethical framework, um, is intimately connected with the words, the works, and wonders of the kingdom of God. So I actually said to my um, PA, I said, look, I want to make this point um, by, by showing that Matthew creates this sandwich. The words, the works, the wonders of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom, which leads to more words and works and the wonders of the kingdom. I said, could you create a little sandwich that demonstrates this? This is what she came up with, which is the biggest typo I think you'll have ever seen in your life. Um, so I, I did say, look, that's, it's close to what I was hoping for, but if you could just make sure you run it through a spell check. Um, and th- this is what we ended up with. But I think it's really important to remember that because as the church, we're really hungry to, to be agents of kingdom renewal in the culture around us. Like we want to see healing. We want to see salvation. We want to see deliverance. We want to infect our workplaces with the values of the kingdom of God. Um, but if we, if we want that, we've got to remember that Jesus says there's a whole way to live that ushers in the kingdom of God. And this is what my friend John Mark Comer would say. If you want the life of the kingdom, you need to adopt the lifestyle of the kingdom. So that's the first foundation. The second foundation is that the Sermon on the Mount is the pathway to human flourishing. So if you place this sermon within the wider narrative of scripture, Matthew um, basically structures his whole gospel using the Exodus narrative as the backdrop. So very, very quick run through of the Exodus narrative. They come out of Egypt, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness. And then you have another climactic moment where Moses ascends the, the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments as a pathway to human flourishing, as a way to live in the circle of God's blessing. And then God provides heaven's bread for them on the journey until they reach the promised land. So if you know the backstory, when you read Matthew's gospel, you realize, ah, Matthew's trying to make a theological point that Jesus is like a second Moses, leading a second Exodus, leading us to the new creation. So Matthew 2, it talks about Jesus um, leaving Egypt. Mary and Joseph had to run there to hide from Herod. And then when it's safe, they come out of hiding, they come out of Egypt. And then the next chapter, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. Next chapter, he's in the wilderness. So anyone reading this at the time would have been thinking, hang on, comes out of Egypt, through the waters, into the wilderness. This sounds really familiar. Then the next chapter, Jesus ascends the mountain. Like Moses ascending Mount Sinai, Jesus ascends the mountain um, and gives a new law, a new pathway to blessing. So you've got the Beatitudes, which begin, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those that mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, here's a new pathway to blessing. It's no longer just the Torah, it's relationship with the lawgiver, Jesus himself. And then you've got the feeding of the 5,000. And the point is, Jesus is creating a pathway to the inbreaking of God's new creation. And this central point then, everyone would have got it, just as God gave them the Ten Commandments, as, as a pathway to human flourishing. Jesus is essentially saying, what I'm doing now is giving you a new pathway to human flourishing. 
That's why these you know, chapters are so pivotal. That's why this teaching is so pivotal. She's saying if you want to thrive, if you want to live well, if, if you want sort of an understanding of human flourishing, here it is. And then finally, the last foundation is the Sermon on the Mount, is the ethical pathway for life in the new creation. And the interesting thing that Jesus does here then, um, he uses this little formula on, on multiple occasions. He says, you've heard that it was said, and now I tell you. So he's basically moving back to the past. You've heard that it was said, in other words, in the Torah, the Ten Commandments and the 613 other commandments in the Jewish law. So he's looking back. You've heard that it was said, but now I'm telling you. He's like intensifying the law. So he's giving ethics from above, which is God spoke and they sought to obey. And now he provides ethics from beyond. So this is the future invading the present. He's basically saying in, in the new creation, not only will there not be murder, you shall not murder, but more than that, there won't even be anger. So if we're to live as the people of the future in the present, we need to not murder, number one, but more than that, we need to deal with our anger. So when you're harboring anger in your heart, you need to deal with that if we're going to be people of the new creation. You've heard that it was said in the past, you shall not commit adultery, but in the new creation, like ethics from beyond the future, there won't even be lust. So if there's lust in your heart, then we need to drive out lust. Obviously, don't commit adultery, but more than that, um, I want to say, like, deal with the stuff that's in your heart right now. So, like, the old order was obedience to the law. It's really about external behavior. And then Jesus says, I want to take this one further now, and I'm going to give you the spirit to enable you to live this out. Um, I'm going to engage in a transformation of the heart. In other words, dealing with internal motives. Now, a question back to you then, Will, is like, I know one of the things when we taught through this is as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you suddenly become aware of this massive chasm between Jesus' teaching and your daily life, my daily life. You read it and think, oh my goodness, there is anger and there is lust and there's all this other stuff. Um, And then certain verses crop up that create panic. Jesus saying, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again, for anyone with a perfectionist drive, they like, in a world of trouble then. So, so the question for you, Will, is how do you actually live and how do you deal with this kind of like vision of life in the new creation um, and knowing what you're like day in, day out, knowing what I'm like, what we're like, how do you deal with the gap? You know, one, one of the things I find really interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is how people read it as in sort of finality. So, you know, you, you have final statements about the new order like you are the salt of the earth or you are the light of the world and so they read the sermon on the mount as a teaching of judgment against them when actually as you say it's a teaching of transformation for them it's impossible to map a journey to anywhere unless you know where it is that you're going so transformation comes from knowing your destination as the first point if you fill in your sat nav and it says where are you going but you don't know it doesn't offer you any assistance and 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 the sermon on the mount is a spiritual sat nav it it shows you the kingdom and 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 the messages of finality are there that you are the salt of the earth that you are the light of the world that that you are the embodiment of the kingdom but having shown you the destination it now offers you a path to make that a reality now some of the parts of the text interpretation and sometimes just in translation have brought up some confusion so one of the most confusing passages is actually in Matthew 5 48 be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect now I always think it would be the greatest irony in the history of the world if Jesus has offered this incredible piece of teaching you know blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they should be comforted blessed are the meek for they inherit the earth and oh by the way guys if you want any of this stuff you've got to be perfect so be like you know 
Jesus is speaking to a broken generation, and he's saying, you know, you have all these distinct needs and this distinct fragility, and I know you're not there yet. The last thing Jesus would say is, if you want any of this, you've got to be perfect. Now, interestingly, the New Testament in the NIV translation offers you this word teleoi as perfect, but it's not translated perfect anywhere else in the New Testament. So it's a poor translation. The Weymouth New Testament translates it much more appropriate to the word teleoi, which is complete. So it's saying, be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is complete. Now, what we know is that God created Father, Son, and Holy Spirit out of his completeness, not out of his deficiency. And when we find our completion in Jesus, then we also find our completion in the Godhead. So being complete in Jesus means actually receiving Jesus into the fullness of our heart, and then we find our completion. So what what Jesus is actually saying, be complete in your heavenly Father, as your heavenly Father is complete. And and what I love about this is it's a statement of our spiritual reality, but we also have to make it a spiritual and psychological reality for ourselves today. But what it isn't, it's not a statement of exclusion from the kingdom of God. And and there are many other aspects, you know, in in the same way we deal with, um, you know, the the problems of life, murder in 521, adultery in 527, revenge in 538, and generosity in 61, they all make absolute statements that seem terrifying, like, you know, you've heard it said that, you know, don't commit adultery, but if you commit adultery with your mind, you've just committed adultery. But what I love about this from a cognitive perspective is, is that, that actually it's encouraging you to change your mind before you act, that acts find their origin in our beliefs. And, and it's easy to tell people off for their acts, but what's important is to help them to translate their mindset into something better into a kingdom framework. If you can change someone's mind about their acts, then they won't act. That's why this piece of teaching is effectively a piece of cognitive behavioral therapy. That's why it's so helpful uh, for, uh, for translation. I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Can I ask you one oh, more question yeah, just on that then? So you've written this book on perfectionism. And I'm sure many of us in the room have that drive within us. So it can create just sheer exhaustion, this constant, I need to be doing more if I'm going to you know, be validated and experience love and affirmation. And there's a drivenness in the culture that's essentially this kind of perfectionist drive. Like, talk us through just the remedy. When that's going on within, how do you name it? And then what's the, the pathway I mean, to life? The, the nature of perfectionism is actually it's all rooted in our in our inner sense of identity. Let's say we drive to be perfect because we believe that by being perfect, we'll elicit the love of others. But what's amazing about Jesus' ministry is it begins from the baptism, from this place of absolute affirmation. Before Jesus had performed any miracles, God said, you're my son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. So everything that Jesus does is ministering out of a place of spiritual and emotional completeness. And actually, the antidote to perfectionism is not doing more for the affirmation of others. It's finding more about who you actually are in, in the Godhead. And the way in which we can find our, our identity is knowing who, who we are because we know whose we are. Uh, effectively, the, the, the nature of perfectionism, it, it, it's a mechanism that makes us feel like we're doing something to deal with a threatening and hostile world. And actually, what we have to do is understand our security and belonging in the world in which we live. And from that place, we can deal with the hostility and the threats of the world around us. We can't mitigate them by overthinking them or overacting. Being a perfectionist is like being a hamster in a wheel. You know, you're running super hard, believing that you're going to get somewhere because humans made wheels and wheels must get you to some sort of destination. And you run and you run and you run until you fall out on the sawdust and realize you've not got anywhere at all. And perfectionists are busy trying to make the world safe 
when actually in Christ the world is safe. It doesn't mean the world doesn't feel threatening or dangerous, but it's actually that when we have our security rooted in who God says we are, we're able to deal with the nature of the threat of the world around us. And that was certainly true in the first century when the disciples knew who they were. Therefore, they were able to suffer the persecution of what it meant to be a Christian in the first century and yet still feel secure in in Christ's call on their lives. Pete, tell us a bit about spiritual practices, because how, how can we how we make this part of the rhythm of our spiritual journey? How can we, if you like, incorporate this into our, our spiritual practice of life? Yeah, I think one of the things, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you realize how incredibly practical it is. Um, and I think that's something we're, we're lacking a lot these days, you know, in terms of spiritual disciplines. It's like, oh, that kind of sounds all religious. We, we love great theology. We want to embrace kind of a Christian worldview. But so much of this teaching is actually deeply practical. And Jesus provides a number of different practices. He talks about fasting and prayer and forgiving and generosity. Um, and you'll notice the language here. This is another kind of bracket sandwich. Don't worry, there's, there's no graphic with rude words in it. Um, but this is another example. The theological term for this is an inclusive when you basically you say a statement then offer some teaching teaching and then say the statement again and you've got another inclusio in the Sermon on the Mount so at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly would be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices notice the language whoever practices and teaches these commands would be called great in the kingdom of heaven and then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount the kind of closing words um, Jesus sums up. He says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Great, great, great reading from the screen. Practice. In other words, he starts and says, actually, what I'm about to teach you is a way of life. And if you want to master this way of life, if you want to be like me, the rabbi, and you're the disciple, you need to practice, practice, practice. And then he gives the teaching. And at the end, he comes into land and says, the key to this is practice, practice, practice. Um, and essentially, this is what you realize is the pathway of becoming. And I want to ask Will about this kind of like the cognitive side to this process of becoming. But spiritually speaking, if you read some of the spiritual writers through the age, like, you know, the Benedicts, the Bonhoeffers, more recently, like Dallas Willard, some of these guys, what you realize is that there's two key, key ingredients in this pathway of becoming. Number one is imitation. So be really careful about who you follow, because we all follow someone. And then thirdly is practice. You practice, practice, practice. This is how we learn to walk, right? You would watch mum and dad or, or some figure and wow, wow. And then you'd give it a go and you'd fall over and you'd give it a go and fall over. And gradually you'd learn to walk. This is how you learn to talk and you learn to ride a bike and you learn to drive. It was all imitation and then practice. And that's what you see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is inviting his followers, like, come follow me. I'm going to show you a whole new way to be human. And then you practice, practice, practice. Um, and I think kind of we live at a time when we want shortcuts to everything and like anything that's going to involve hard work and sacrifice and discipline we're like oh not really not really keen on that you know I want the end goal straight away and Jesus says it's not really like that you know if you want to follow me you've got to die to self um, and follow this whole new way of of living and, and the way that we do this is through these habits, spiritual disciplines. This is how Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, put it. He said, basically, you've got a, a first nature. This is how you currently are now. Um, and then if you imitate, 
and practice, 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 or in the words of Jesus from the message translation, if you learn these unforced rhythms of grace, then you develop a second nature. Certain things become second nature to you. If you practice um, generosity, then it will eventually become second nature just to be generous. There's an opportunity to be like, let me grab that bill. Oh, let me bless you in this way. Um, The pathway to becoming generous is practicing generosity. Um, And this is kind of an understanding you see constantly through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you some very practical disciplines um, that will feel unnatural. Like forgiving, it will feel unnatural. You'll want vengeance. That's right. You're human. You're broken. That's your starting point. But if you practice, 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 you'll learn how to forgive. So if that's kind of like the theology or the kind of like framework for it, like what's actually, if we, if we were to lift the, the kind of like the car bonnet, what's going on underneath in terms of psychology? Well, I mean, the two things that are going on here are really important. The first one is imitation. And actually 30% of your brains are made up of mirror cells. And mirror cells purely imitate what they see. That's why it's so important what you look at, because what you look at is what you will imitate. Mirror cells are evident in our children. If you're a parent here today, you'll know that actually... How you, how you act in front of your child will be mirrored by your child. If, you, if, you, if you've ever had a close call in your car and uh, you've said something you shouldn't have said, it'd be amazing how quickly that reappears out of the back seat. Because children imitate what they see and imitate what they hear. 30% of their brains are just made up of specifically mirror cells. And those cells are the cells of imitation. So when we imitate, we actually actively uh, agree with the process of our own minds. We're saying, yeah, I want to open myself up to imitating this. I want my mirror cells to receive and reflect these values. But the praxis part mentally is about accepting our neuroplasticity. That's the ability of our brains to make significant internal changes for the sake of absorbing new material. So we can actually change our brains by practicing new behaviours. When we talk about cognitive behavioural therapy, all we're doing is we're talking about changes in our cognitions, which is just a fancy word for thoughts, in order that our behaviours might change. And that's a, a reaffirming cycle because... When you change your behaviours, you also change your cognitions. So as you, as you change your thoughts about a behaviour, and then you change your behaviour, you also change your thoughts about the behaviour. So this is why it's so important to absorb this teaching and act it out. Like, for example, Jesus' teaching here on, 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 on uh, retaliation in Matthew 5, 4, 24, it says, be reconciled to your brother and then come to offer your gift. So the act of reconciliation is the practice of forgiveness. So you might have seen forgiveness mirrored, then we receive that teaching and then we practice that reconciliation and therefore we, if you like, work it out by going to visit our brother. Or, or we might say, for example, in 622, the eyes are the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, then your whole body will be full of light. It's not a teaching around whether or not you have good or bad <laughs> eyesight. The teaching is around your perception. So if you can see what's going on, you can then make a good cognitive change, what we call make a new appraisal or reappraisal of your behaviour, and you can start to do something different. Uh, one, of the, one of the assumptions that we often come across, particularly amongst Christians, is you should pray to change. Now, that is true, but you should pray to change, and you should also act to change, and you should also think to change. A, a lot of Christians say, oh, don't worry, I've prayed about it. I'm going to get over my anxiety. And actually we're saying, it's great to pray about it, and now you've got to think to change, and you've got to behave to change. You can't ask God just to take that away. Equally, where forgiveness is concerned, I've prayed to God about it, he's going to make me forgive. No, you've got to pray to God about it, 
You've got to think to change, and then you've got to act to change. And that model, that step of making a new appraisal about your reality, accepting it into your mind, and then outworking it in your behavior, that is the way we actually create new neural pathways, and we begin to act in new ways. Uh, and that's, that's why, again, this is the, the most psychologically profound piece of teaching you're going to come across. So just to drill down, that particularly the verse about the eyes being the lamp for the body, like so much of our understanding of people, groups, of situations comes about through this lens. And our, the lens through which we see the world, our worldview, if you like, is shaped by upbringing, education, life experience. And it can be really hard to sort of like realize that actually you're seeing through a distorted lens because you've actually grown up around like distorted views and whatever else. Like just give us some practical ideas. How do you go about like cleansing that lens, essentially repentance. How do you clean the lens so you see the world, you see one another as God sees the world, as God sees people? Well, Pete, I think the, the, the first thing is to, is to acknowledge that we all see imperfectly, as Paul says, but, but then, through a mirror darkly, we will be transformed and God will give us the sight to see as things really are. And the first step to change is acknowledging our poor vision. And when we can, if you like, hold within ourselves the reality that we're probably prejudiced in different ways, we can begin to augment that prejudice to something that's more kingdom-based. I would always say uh, assessing and accepting your first reaction is the best indication of what you believe. That's a really good way of knowing how I really feel. And people make all sorts of big claims about what they are and what they're not in society today. But actually accepting the reality of who we are and then beginning to pray and act and think for change, that will bring us a greater clarity. And you know, within us all are a lot of what we call safety behaviors. These are mechanisms that we believe keep us safe in a hostile world. And very often those behaviors lead us to withdraw. So we might withdraw from people that look different to us. We might withdraw from settings where we feel uncomfortable, where we feel anxious, where we feel afraid, or we might um, act in an angry way in order to defend our own space. Now, all of those are behaviors, if you like, or perceptions that are aimed at preserving us. And, and the scripture says, unless the seed fall to the ground and die, it bear not fruit. Yeah. And those who try and save their life will lose it. But those who lose their life, for my sake, they'll find it. Now, all of that teaching is, is helpful teaching to help us to be curious about our first reaction. Because it tells us something about our innate belief. Secondly, it, it prompts us to not believe the first thing that we think or see. And, and in a society which says, believe your feelings, trust your feelings, I want to encourage you not to believe or to trust your feelings as much as you think you should. Now, I have an anxiety disorder, and I can tell you, it lies to me every day. My anxiety disorder lies to me about the risk of being on stage. It lies to me about the risk of high winds and small tents. It lies to me about the potential for fire risk on campsites. It lies to me all the time about risk. And I can either live in a small circle of safety where I lose my life, or I can live in a great big circle of freedom where I find my life. But in order to live in the big circle of freedom, I have to actually live against the instinctual feelings of fear that I encounter every day. And I believe that we've been sold a narrative in our society which overvalues our feelings. This actually says they are more important than they really are, or your feelings cannot change. Your feelings are a fixed point in your life, and what they are, they are. Now, we've both been married for a long time, and we, count, we coach people in marriage. One of the key things we do in marriage coaching is say, don't trust your feelings. If you wake up and you have a bad day, don't walk out the door. 
because tomorrow will be a good day. And you know, encouraging people not to trust their feelings but find a better way with their feelings, a more biblical way with their feelings, is to do these sorts of things. And actually, you know, the call to reconcile to others, the call to stand against um, the, the beliefs or the attitudes that lead to murder, adultery, revenge, and gener- or bad, poor generosity, that's, that's a sign from God that we can change, that we are not slaves to sin, but we are free people to Christ. But in order to live free, we have to assume a freedom that our feelings don't, all, don't always agree with. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Pete, just in terms of your context of church, tell us a bit about, I mean, I, I'm always talking about the, the intimacies of the personal in terms of how all this teaching could be real for you as an individual. But, but this teaching's changing churches, and it has done for two millennia. How, how, is it, how is it changing and impacting life in church in your experience? What was the meta-narrative? Yeah, I, I think there's a number of things that, that, as we've gone on this journey, I mean, I think it, you know, it happens at an individual level, um, it happens at a community level, and then it begins to bleed out into the culture. And I think as, as people take responsibility for the stuff that's going on within, as they allow Christ into the, the deepest parts of their own inner being, Christ heals and restores. And when he heals and restores, we become agents of healing and restoration. And I love this quote from one of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, who says, find the door of your heart, you'll discover it's the door of the kingdom of God. So this journey that we've been on as a church is to say, look, why don't, rather than just burying all this stuff, what you said so true that our, our emotions aren't a great guide, but they are a language that you have to listen to um, because you need to actually identify what's going on, what are the storms within, what's the chaos within, and then to have faith that God is the one that quietens storms, stills the storms, that he brings order. And as that happens individually and as it happens collectively, something beautiful happens that begins to invade the culture around. And I read this, a bit of this book recently that I found really helpful. The book's called A Failure of Nerve. And this guy's basically saying that if you want to be an agent of shaping the culture around, which is what we long for, right? We want the transformation of society. We want the kingdom values to infect every sphere of culture. And he said, if you really want to shape culture, then you need to inject into the culture that which is lacking in the culture. Um, and he said, in this current climate that we find ourselves in, what's, what's lacking in the culture is shalom or peace, or or well-being. There's just anxiety everywhere. Like at an individual level, particularly in in major cities, like we live constantly with low-grade anxiety, and sometimes it's way worse. We're seeing it in communities, this anxiety, knife crime on the rise, unrest. We see it politically as a a country, like Brexit negotiations, everyone's panicking, what's our future going to look like? We see it internationally, and and there's this constant anxiety. And he basically says, what we need at this time our leaders and disciples, and this is his phrase, that we become the non-anxious presence in the world around us. The non-anxious presence. Like as a side point, I, I think that's partly the fascination with Gareth Southgate. I mean, partly we love his waistcoats, they're amazing. Um, But more than the waistcoats, suddenly a leader emerged that didn't have a massive ego, that it wasn't always about him, that he wasn't taking all of the praise. He was like, no, I'm going to pass that on to the players. Um, And he brought this kind of peace. Um, He wasn't a control freak, so he allowed the players to express themselves and be creative. And suddenly it was like, oh, I love that style of leadership. And I think we live at a time where people are looking for a non-anxious presence in their workplace, when everyone's stressed out and they've got, you know, 
demands and deadlines. Ah, how am I going to get through the day? And there's relational demands and there's time demands. Everyone's panicking. What would it look like to become a non-anxious presence in the world around us? Like introducing the shalom of heaven, which kind of means the wholeness, the well-being, the fullness of life. And if we want to introduce shalom into the world, we need to allow God to introduce shalom into our, the storms within our own hearts. So that's why this quote is so important. You've got to find the door to your heart. If you're not actually in touch with what's going on in in your inner world, that's a major problem. What is the state of your heart? And when you begin to discern what's going on within, as you open that door, like Revelation 3.20, Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Like when you open that door and he comes in, he'll begin to transform your inner life. And suddenly you'll experience, like incrementally, bit by bit, as you imitate, as you practice, you'll know more of this peace that passes understanding. You'll know more of this shalom, more of this fullness of life. And as that becomes an anchor in your own soul, you'll notice that you interact with people differently in your workplace. That gradually they'll be like, oh, there's something different, that they're a non-anxious presence. And trust me, you'll begin to become a major influence for shaping culture. So that's what we've, what, that's what we've realized as a church, is you go on this individual journey, you'll inspire others to do the same. And when you've got a whole community on this journey, and then they go out into every sector of society, into streets, into neighborhoods, universities, schools, suddenly this non-anxious presence is, is like the yeast, Jesus would say, like the yeast in, in, in the dough. It's like the mustard seed that grows to become this incredible thing in the kingdom of God. So interesting because, you know, one of the things that propagates anxiety is in our world today is this binary view, is that you're either good or you're bad, you're either in or you're out, you're either rich or you're poor. Um, and, and, and this sort of binary view affects everything. We, we, we live in a polarizing world where it feels like everyone's pitted against one another. And Brexit maybe is a, a great example for us. You're either a leave or remain. Yeah. And there's nothing sort of in between. And, um, you know, in, in terms of anxiety, people then feel that there's a line that they should be on the right side of all the time. So they're always working for this. I, I cycle in to the center of town every day. I, I pass you know, thousands of advertising hoardings. And I, I was thinking advertising it steals your dignity and it sells you back to... To, you know, it sells it back to you for the price of the product. But, you know, it, it's always saying, you know, you will, you, you're in if you've got this product. You're out if you haven't. Yeah. You know, it, it, everything sort of feels set to, to kind of downgrade your sense of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And this shalom peace is such, a, it's such an umbrella. It's, it stands over everything. And even here in, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus' teaching is, you've heard it said, um, love your enemies and hate your enemy. It's a binary world. Mm-hmm. You, are, you love your neighbors because they're your friends, but you hate your enemy because they're your enemy. And, and, and this sort of binary experience we, we're reliving in our world today. You know, love those around you, create a tribal view, but hate those outside of you. And, you know, the newspapers I, I notice around the world will work on this view. They propagate anxiety by creating a binary worldview. There are a group of frightening people out there. You should hate them. And there's a group of lovely people over here. You should love them. Nothing else works. But, you know, Jesus' teaching is, is, is so amazing because, because he calls us not to hate. He says, I tell you, you know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, uh, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And it's like all of the binary nature of the world, this kind of like black or white on everything, is just turned to a, you know, this incredible umbrella of the kingdom of God that says, actually, you, know, you don't have to be stuck in that like, status anxiety of like, being in or out. Like in the kingdom of God, as a son or daughter of God, you, you're in a different place. You don't need to respond or react in the same way anymore. You're, you're in this new space. And I, I, you know, I think emotionally healthy spirituality in the church is it's, it's just this sense of the presence of God and this, this belief that we are his presence in the world. 
And actually, I think the call on the church in the 21st century is not to react so strongly, mm. but actually to be a presence, you know, to bring his presence. And that's why I'm, I'm so excited about what's, what's happening in Focus this week. And how do you respond to people then that essentially say, look, it sounds great, but is, isn't it encouraging the church to become introspective? Like everyone should just focus on their own pain, their own anxiety, their own mental and emotional well-being. Um, is, isn't this kind of an introspective form of spirituality? What would your response to that be? Well, normally people who say that to me, I think, you know, I should send them off to therapy. <laughs> uh, is it, you know, Anna Freud, who was Sigmund's daughter, had a lot of very sensible things to say. Um, talked a lot about the safety behaviours, you know, mechanisms that we use to, um, to divert away from our pain and anxiety and all the fears that we carry. And very often that's leaning towards the group and saying, look, this is discounting, you know, our purpose or this is damaging our mission. I, I think that the healthy spiritual church is a church that, recognizes that every single person is a valuable child of God and everyone is working their stuff out with Jesus on a one-to-one. When we sort of step out and say, oh no, this sort of stuff, it's just navel-gazing. We're basically saying God doesn't really care about you as an individual. He just cares about us collectively. And actually God cares about the detail of our lives. And, and, and a healthy church is not a church that becomes more introspective. It's a church that finds the healing that enables it to be more compassionate, and, and more kingdom-focused. And that the problem we have is that the church can also, also create a herd mentality, which is very binary, and where we're in, we all feel safe and we all lift our hands in the air. But going out, again, feels terrifying because we're trained to be safe in this place, but to look out on this really hostile, you know, sinful world where we're all going to get, like, pulled down. And actually, Jesus came into the world because he loves the world. God loves the whole world. And I think God wants us to be healed, not for introspection's sake, but for mission's sake. And I I just think, what what an incredible um, demonstration of the kingdom of God. If Christians took their emotional mental health seriously, and they were the healthiest people in the world around them, people would start saying, I need to become a Christian because I want to get emotionally healthy. I want to get spiritually healthy. You know, that is a sign, if you like, of the kingdom of God through the Sermon on the Mount. And and we've seen quite a bit of that. We've probably, I would say over the last few months, had more non-Christians coming to KXC than than maybe ever before. Um, And it's because we're talking about emotional well-being. And there are people inviting their friends who are suffering with chronic anxiety or deep in grief. They're like, I just... I have no idea what to do and I've done tons of yoga and I need something more than just yoga. And they're like, well, why don't you come? And they're coming and they're actually sort of like beginning to listen. Well, maybe actually there's a God who cares and a God who can bring healing and redemption. And I I love what you just said because I think actually that is the context for the Sermon on the Mount, that actually Jesus comes to a people and you've got to remember the historic context that they were living under sort of semi-exile. They weren't free to be the people they were created by God to be. They were living under Roman rule and Roman oppression. Um, and exile in the Jewish mindset was part of the curse that God spoke about in the law. That if you walk away from me, it will feel like you're living under a curse, separated from my presence. So they felt like they were cursed and they were crying out to God, like, rescue us, you know, recon- be reconciled to us. We want to experience the Father's embrace. And Jesus says to a people feeling like they were under the curse of God's judgment, he says, you're blessed now. In other words, I'm here and healing and restoration is available right now. So you think you're cursed and now I'm telling you, you are blessed. So if you're poor in spirit and you've presumed that's a curse, no, 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 I'm telling you, you're blessed. If you're mourning the state of Israel at the time because you think you're living under a curse, no, 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 I'm telling you, you're blessed now. So there's a, a kind of complete new paradigm shift. I'm inviting you back into blessing. 
Like, I, I am reconciling you to God the Father so that you can thrive. So I'm healing you as a nation. You know, Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost sheep of Israel. So that's the first mission, to rescue and restore Israel so that through Israel, so that through the followers of Jesus, that rescue and redemption could reach the ends of the earth. So it's for the sake of mission. And I love that. So there's, there's a blessing, there's a shalom that we're drawn into for the sake of, of restoring all of created order. And then the key part of that is that, is that we've also become really addicted to the narrative of healing as an absolute experience in our spiritual journey now. But, but what you see in the Sermon on the Mount is that, is that a spiritual healing takes place in any individual who knows that they're blessed. You know, a lot, a lot of what I'm dealing with with the Mind Soul Foundation is, is stigma around mental health. So Christians who feel that actually there's a judgment over their lives or you know, depression is laziness, anxiety is, is a lack of trust, you know, psychotic disorder is, a, is, is some demonic possession. So they feel under judgment. But what I love about the Sermon on the Mount is, you know, it challenges the stigma. It says, no, you're blessed. You're children too. And I always think about those, those first century prostitutes and tax collectors who were all sort of gathering on the fringes of society. And they were feeling like they, they'd exiled themselves because they, they were stigmatized. And yet Jesus dines with them and he invites them in. He says, no, you're blessed. This is for you. You, you might not experience a healing this side of heaven, but the kingdom of God is for you. And, and, and we want to just, you know, empower you with this teaching today to say that you know, however you, you've, you've arrived in the room today that the kingdom of God is for you that actually you're not on the outside of this teaching you're the inside and it might feel like there's a binary category to access like you know you need to sort this issue out you need to find healing in this or that the other the sermon on the mount says that this is a message for you that you're included and actually that the perfection of your life is the fact that Christ died and took your shame in order that you might become the righteousness of God like, and each of you carry that kingdom righteousness that's not dependent on your works but dependent on his grace great awesome let's pray you get to pray pete yeah why don't we just pray just where you are maybe just want to open your hands just as a sign of your openness to god we just want to spend a little time praying for you and just asking god to make this stuff real yeah so holy spirit we welcome you Lord, we ask that you'd come now and just take the little thoughts, the little insights that you wanted to speak over us and that those kingdom truths, those seeds of the kingdom would now descend from the head to the heart and begin to bear fruit, fruit that will last. We intentionally choose now to open the door of our hearts to give you access to every part of who we are. Come and search us. And if there be anything within us where you just want to pour out grace, pour out healing, Lord, would you come and do that by your spirit? And Father, we want to speak just a relief, a a liberation from stigma and shame for any who feel that they are outside of your blessing. Pray today that they would know that they're blessed. 
for any here who's struggling with difficult thoughts and feelings, pray, Lord, for your comfort, for your encouragement. Pray give every person here the courage to stand against some of those feelings that lead them in the wrong direction, to choose new thoughts and to act out new behaviors in your strength. We speak over this group of people that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And Jesus, we want to pray for an emotional, spiritual healing in order that we might see greater mission in our broken and hurting world. Lord, would you liberate us to love the world as you love it and to serve the world as you serve it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Pete. Amazing. Amazing. Just before, just before you head out today, just to let you know, um, Pete's got an amazing new book coming out just after Christmas called All Things New. Pete, just want to tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so it's going to come out hopefully next April time. Um, I'm actually just finishing the final chapter before I hand in the final manuscript at the end of August. But it's basically about the narrative, reading from Genesis through to Revelation, um, and how do we understand this story that we belong to, with the central idea that the story you live in is the story you live out. So we need to become intimately familiar with the story we live in so that we can live it out and be agents of renewal in the world around us. If you want more help, especially with regard to emotional mental health, then I just really encourage you to pick up one of these flyers if they're not, there's not one on your chair, just around the Minosol Foundation. And uh, there are thousands of articles and podcasts, some from Pete, on the website at minosolfoundation.org and also we're on social at Minosol UK. If you're interested in a whole day's conference on mental health and Christian spirituality, that's also on there. And uh, just a new one from me, The Power of Belonging, that comes out at Christmas, but there's a, a special pre-order with a discount available in the bookshop today. The Power of Belonging is Overcoming Shame to Find Your Place in the World. And again, there's some flyers up here at the front. We'd love you to take one or give one to a friend. Thanks so much. Tomorrow, we're back in here at the same time. We're in here every day at the same time. We've got Diane and Patrick Regan coming. Uh, We've got Ariana Walker coming. Uh, I'm coming back with Kate Middleton to do something on Teenage Brain. And uh, we would love to connect with you guys every single day, half past two in this venue. Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You might want to dress up for the rain. Thanks so much.